Adventure Sports Podcast, episode 352. We're talking snowboarding and ski bumming with Dan Leroy. On a whim, asked if they needed a bartender, and the guy looks at me like, yeah, we really do. It's, you know, we just lost somebody, and uh, two hours later, I was being walked down to HR, given a uh, ski pass to Big Sky, uh, four days a week of bartending at night, and then free lift tickets anywhere in Montana. So I was just like, well, great, you know? And they're like, you got a place to stay, right? I was like, yeah, sure. You're listening to the Adventure Sports Podcast, brought to you by 180 Tech. We talk with adventurers from around the globe to bring you the inspiration and motivation you need to get started in the outdoors or to keep you moving if you're already there. Now here's your host, Kurt Linville. This episode is brought to you in part by Bissell Bark Bath, the easier way to bathe your dog indoors. For more information, go to Bissell slash Adventure Sports and be sure to use the coupon code Adventure Sports when you get a bark bath for your dog. Hey guys, today is all things snowboarding and I've got the right guy for it. Dan Leroy is on the horn with me here and man, we are going to geek out on not just sliding down the, the ski area on a snowboard. We're going to talk about the snowboard culture, expanded backcountry snowboarding, split boarding, manufacturing, shaping your own board, all kinds of cool stuff like that. Dan grew up in Evergreen, Colorado, and he has spent many years in the snowboard industry, and he is the guy to talk to. He is from Winterstick Snowboards, and we're going to talk about what makes Winterstick really unique as well toward the end of the show. So... Anyway, I'm excited to talk snowboarding today. This is going to be a blast. Dan, welcome to the show. Thanks, Kurt. Good to be here. So who is Dan Leroy, man? I hear you grew up in Evergreen, but what's your story? How'd you get into snowboarding? Yeah, you know, I, uh, I grew up in, in Evergreen. Uh, my parents got me on skis when I was three, and by the time I was 13, I uh, was beating them down the hill so much, but still wasn't driving myself to the hill. That I was like, well, I need I need to try something else just to mix it up. Uh, picked up a snowboard, an old Morrow Revert, uh, and uh, and start started in. I think it was the winter of '93. And so you started snowboarding. Now you started skiing first, and you switched to snowboarding. Was that the right thing to do? Definitely. Um, the my last pair of skis at the time were uh, you know black and and day glow neon. Uh, K2s, straight as an arrow. <laughs> right. Um, you know, good at good at pointing downhill and going fast. Um, and about the, around the same time, uh, my last pair of ski boots had taken both my big toes from my big toenails from me. Uh, so that you know, I wasn't wasn't really into the equipment anymore, <laughs> and it just wasn't doing it for me. And, and I saw, uh, you know, snowboards, and I'd skateboarded a little bit, and uh, and I was like, you know, I'll, I'll just give it a try. It looks like fun. And then uh, I guess you fell in love with it because you're still doing it. Yeah, you know, I didn't ski for uh, 10 years at least. I just didn't go back. And finally, when I moved uh, after college, I moved back to Colorado. I picked up another pair of skis and boots and got the equipment on uh, on discount and started doing it every once in a while. Um, now, I'm a, now I'm a pluralist. A pluralist. <laughs> you're the perfect guy to talk about this. So there's a, I, I call it a fun rivalry between skiers and snowboarders. But sometimes it gets a little bit heated, which is funny too. Yeah. I think I think the reason for the heat is because the different ways that we carve on the snow. So skiers screw up the snow for snowboarders, and snowboarders screw up the snow for skiers, right? <laughs> but we can all live yeah. together. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, you know, I like doing one depending on, over the other depending on snow conditions. You know, if it's if it's deep snow and fluffy, then uh, and and I want to go on challenging terrain, then uh, yeah, you know, my board is is definitely the way I go. Um, I usually tend to stick to the sides of the mogul runs, where the snowboarders usually kind of hang out, and and the the moguls are bigger, the the turns are kind of surfier, right? And then you right. get skiers going down the middle, and uh, yeah, the bumps are definitely shaped different. But of course, you know, over over the last thirty or so years, just watching the the hill, it, it it takes yeah, the moguls take a different shape. You know, I don't think they're as deep anymore these years. Uh, you know, uh, I remember some moguls just being able to swallow you in the trenches beneath them. Uh, you know, in, over in in Mary Jane when I was growing up, and right, I think they're a little bit smaller now. There's definitely 
a different shape to them when uh, when you get everybody on there. I don't yeah. think it's any better or worse. It's just, you know, different flavor. They kind of average out. You know, the skiers are always giving the snowboarders a hard time when they're on a cat track and they're trying to go and, and <laughs> the skiers just skate or pull by. But you guys solve that problem with split boards, right? Well, yeah, I mean, you, the transition is such that uh, you don't really whip out the split board on a, con, on a, on a cat track. Right, um, right. Quite so much. But, uh, you know, just pulling the back foot out and skating does does a pretty good job and uh, if you get enough speed going into the cat track you don't have to worry anyway well and you know what the uh the nice boots that snowboarders get to wear walkable boots you know what i mean Way better oh Way better. warmer <laughs> more comfortable and i have to admit it i'm a skier i've only snowboarded just a little bit and it was a ton of fun but i'm a skier but when you see a snowboarder going down through the fresh pow and it looks like they're surfing out on the ocean that's cool <laughs> that it, is cool. Pretty much, it's pretty much one of the best feelings you can you can have. I think you know you get to steer your own roller coaster through a field of down. So how, how I like to put it. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, snowboarding obviously is just a hit. Everybody across Colorado knows that. There, I don't know if there are more skiers and more snowboarders in the mountains up here. I wouldn't want to guess. I will say this: that I love skiing with snowboarders. And it's fun to see the little differences and the, the things a snowboard can do that skis can't and vice versa. But, man, if you're on the mountain, you're having a good time. So I embrace it all. Exactly. You know, if all I had was a lunch tray and a bunny hill, I, I would like to think that I would still have some, some fun. <laughs> as long as you could steer it somehow. <laughs> yeah. Start dragging hands, you know, you know, put a couple of bumps in there just to make things interesting. Absolutely. <laughs> Very cool. Well, you know what? Let's uh, let's talk about a little bit of your snowboarding journey because it became a bigger part of your life than just something to do for fun, right? It did. It did. Uh, I uh, I got done with college where I got uh, uh, a math degree, math anthropology and philosophy. Uh, but I'd started in engineering. I was in physics for a while. I, I kind of took all the classes I wanted to. Uh, but then I got I got done, and I was like, you know, I I just jumped through everybody else's hoops. I'm gonna go do what I've always wanted to do, which was live in a ski town. You know, I wanted to just go be a ski bum. Um, so after college, uh, I ended up getting a job at Vail Valley Academy uh, there in, in Vail Valley and, and teaching private school to the likes of uh, Tony Siebert and uh, um, some other kids there um, in Vail. And I got 200 days on the mountain in, in two years because, of course, we got to teach them high school in half a day. So they can go out and ski. Of course, that means the teachers get to go out and ski too. Right on. <laughs> That's amazing. So uh, yeah, after yeah after two seasons of that, I was hooked. I was living in Westvale. Um, I could you know hit uh, the Westvale trees, just this the Vale side country, and uh, and pretty much hit untracked glades to my house and and step off my snowboard onto my front porch. Ah. Oh. Uh, and it was and it was awesome, you know. I I, would, I mostly rode a, a K two. I was, you know, just broke, completely broke. Because even on that, the the teachers' pay it was it was uh, not easy living in a ski town. No. But uh, I got a Fat Bob one sixty two, uh, you know, true twin snowboard that was just lots of surface area. I uh, I told myself I was going to learn how to ride powder switch tried that for a little while but i rode that five dollar board i think probably 150 160 days uh, <laughs> five dollar board yeah that's awesome. <laughs> there, was, there was there was a lot of top lamination missing from the back as like, i didn't i didn't really care it was it was just big enough you know i didn't i have small feet but uh but i like to lean over on the carve so much that you know boot out is just super annoying you know when your boot hits the snow oh, and yeah. your your edge comes out of the trench and you go flying um, so I was like, I don't want any of that. So give me, you know, as fat a board as I could find. And, and that K2 fat Bob fit the bill. So I, I rode the heck out of that for a while there in Vail. And after a couple of seasons there, I was hooked, you know, I was like, you know, I, I, I would love to keep doing this. Uh, and, and I'd always, you know, heard about Telluride, but never, never gone through there. So I ended up, uh, on a road trip back from California, uh, just saying, Hey, let's, uh, let's. I was with my uh, my college girlfriend at the time, and hey, let's go check out Telluride, see what it's about. Pulled into town, uh, and there was a there was an ad in the paper for a 
library job, and that was my first job in, in Telluride. I scored the job and was like, oh, now I got to get a place to live, and, and it all just kind of fell in and, and fell together, and it was, uh, you know, teaching snowboarding and, and working at the library in my first season there in Telluride, and it was, uh, you know, living the dream. Wow. And Telluride has changed a lot over the years. What was the year that you were there? Or the uh, I got there in the summer of 06. Summer of 06. So a lot of the changes were already taking place by the time you were there. Definitely. You know, if I had showed up in the 90s and, and, and bought something on Main Street, I wouldn't have to work anymore today. But uh, <laughs> Yeah, you'd, you know, you'd yeah. be set, wouldn't you? Yeah. But everything, you know, the, the gondola was installed. Everything was, was really moving. Um, you know, and after living there for a little while, I was just really impressed on how such a small town in the middle of nowhere could could work on a and and do things on a global level. Yeah. Uh, there was the Telluride Science Research Center who brought in uh, you know nano materials physicists from across the world and and had conferences and uh, you know the big movies are being filmed there and you're stars walking around and Coolio behind you in line for the cafe and and just all this you know it just felt like while you were in the middle of nowhere you were in the center of something and uh and so I was even more excited when I got the job at uh at Wagner Custom it was just a uh an ad in the paper they needed somebody to uh to run a CNC machine a big robot that cuts out parts and uh and Marty Bonacci had brought his uh kind of customizing process out there uh, to tell your ride and, and Pete Wagner was uh, just starting the shop and, and put some, putting some skis out and starting to fill in uh, personnel positions. And I was like, well, yeah, Cartesian coordinates and logic, no problem. Sure. I can, I can do that. It was kind of nice to be uh, one of the few guys with a, with a math degree <laughs> in a ski town. Right. <laughs> so you got the CNC job. Yep. Yep. And then uh, a couple of weeks later, uh, you know, they're like, oh, yeah. And by the way, we got this uh, OEM business uh, for Winter Stick. You ever heard of them? And I, I remember my jaw kind of dropped. You know, I'd, I'd never read ridden a Winter Stick before, but I'd always heard about them and kind of seen them on the on the periphery as that cool brand that, uh, you know, didn't have and didn't wasn't winning contests, wasn't out there in the half pipe, but, you know, but just stood for kind of soul riding and out there just being on your own and and doing it for the love of it not doing it because you're winning any contests and so i was i was just super stoked i was like sweet winter stick and and then i had my first uh powder day on the swallowtail and i've never gone back really well <laughs> tell us i've been looking at the I, since i haven't tried a swallowtail obviously if i if i got on a snowboard you'd laugh at me right now i would be an extreme novice <laughs> but um but you've had how's it different? Through, right? yeah 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 yeah. So I how's mean, the swallowtail different from the standard, you know, like call it a twin tip board? Yeah. So the uh, up until just a couple of years ago, the only uh, modern one that you could have available was the 183, which is taller than me and taller than most snowboarders, I, I have a feeling. Uh, and, the, and the first thing that, that somebody does when you tell them you ride a 183 is the kind of eyes go big and they're like, oh, my gosh, that's a huge board. Um, and, but I tell them I'd ride it in the trees, uh, and, and they go even crazier, more crazy. Right. Um, but what it is, it's kind of like a 153 with 30 centimeters extra nose. And, uh, you know, back in the, in the seventies, you got to give it, got, give a ton of credit to, uh, to Milovich cause he, he made something that is just now finally coming full circle into, into the industry, which is lots of tip rocker taper, getting your, your, geometry of whatever you're writing um you know focused and and centered on optimized for one particular snow type and that for the swallowtail is is the deep stuff the bottomless stuff oh yeah and before you were, got on a resort that was all that they were doing they were just hiking up and getting soft utah pow so um their shapes quickly became optimized for that kind of riding and uh and now that everybody is starting to appreciate at least in the states you know, the, the powder experience, um, you know, that boards shaped to more optimized to that environment are definitely becoming more and more uh, prevalent. And what it does <clears throat> is that all that extra nose and, and surface area up front, you know, it's 345 at the tip and most plastic you, you buy for base materials only 330. So it takes 
special manufacturing, uh, you know, equipment and, and resources. But when you get all that service area up front and you take it all of, out of the back, it lets you get off your back foot uh, and keep that tip above the snow. Because whether you're a skier or a snowboarder, you let that the tip of your equipment dive underneath the snow. And unless you're planning on just like living on, on the base of the snow underneath the powder, you know, when that powder hits you in the shins, you slow down a lot. If you don't endo, right? (laughs) Yeah. If you don't endo, right? (laughs) Exactly. Uh, So, you know, getting all that surface area out there just makes the tip float and, uh, and you can take all your weight off your back foot and, and get it back at least centered, if not leaning on your front foot. And the, the 183 swallowtail, I take in the trees all the time because I can get and lean on my front foot uh, at low speeds and big turns and, and low angles. And I know the nose still isn't going to just dive on me. Uh, and so that frees your back foot up to kind of pivot around the center of the weight, which is now your front foot. And you can make uh, a lot more turns and you can be confident that your nose isn't going underneath a log. Whatever you hit, you're going right over the top of. Uh, and it's it changes your stance. It changes how you see what you can do. Um, and it changes the feel. And, uh, you know, it's it's really awkward to ride on groomers sometimes. You know, it kind of changes things up. But once you get it in its optimum conditions, you know, the light bulb goes on. You're like, oh, yeah, this is great. <laughs> this is how it should work. <laughs> wow. Um, you know, and, and so it takes a little bit of a transition, but I got my sister on one for the, for the first time just a couple of weeks ago. And, uh, it was a powder day at a basin and she was like, no, no, I just, it's my first day up. I just want to ride my regular board. And we had a, went out and had a great powder day, but I was the whole time I was like, you should have ridden the Swally, should have ridden the Swally. Uh, and she's, she's tiny. She's like five foot two and, uh, and, and a hundred nothing. Uh, but I had a, a Swallowtail 163 that we started making this year and, uh, we hit the the Loveland Pass on the way back, and her smile at the bottom was just huge. She was like, you were right. I should have been riding it all day. It changes the smokes. <laughs> you can get off your back foot and everything. So, oh, it's just so, uh, you know, really optimizing for your for your snow is is what that shape is all about for sure. And and it's, it's a nice, I guess, segue because optimizing your shape for what you're skiing and, and how you're skiing is what it's all about. Well, here's you know, a question for you then. So, we don't have as many powder days as we used to, and that might not even be true. This year, we don't have as many powder days as last year. I can guarantee you that much. But yeah. the deal is that, it, do you want to have two boards? Do you want to have the one that, all right, it's kind of hard today. I'll leave the swally in the car. You know what I mean? Or or do you just Definitely. say, no, I'm going to figure it out? I mean, I've ridden the swally on icy bumps. Um, it really does great in pond skims. You know, it doesn't mind the slush <laughs> or just huge pools of water. Um, but yeah, you know, anybody that says, oh, no, this is the one board or the one pair of skis you're ever going to need. It's just not true. You know, you just you're accepting suboptimal uh, gear. You know, when you get a nice pair of carving skis on and all you want to do is carve groomers all day, you're going to have a great time much more of a great time than if you're like, well, I really just want to carve groomers all day, but my, you know, my personal flotation devices are all I have in the car. So I guess I'll ride those. (laughs) Yeah. It's kind of fun. I I ski kind of an all mountain ski that it cuts through the crud really well. It carves well, uh, not excellent in the powder, but it it holds its own, but I know I'm giving up a lot on a pow day. And I guess that's what you're talking about, right? Yeah, you know, you can make it work. Like I said, you can make a lunch tray work. Uh, you can you can make these things work. Uh, but when you have the optimum equipment, it just, it's so, it's like, it, it does make a huge difference. Mm. Um, even just a pair of skis, you know, from 85 at the waist to 104 at the waist. I was skiing yesterday and, and trying out a couple different pairs of skis, and one was right for the conditions and, and the other wasn't. And, and just the amount of, the amount of how much I felt better at skiing with the correct equipment on my feet uh is is just huge you know you can yeah you can make stuff work but boy if you really want to get out there and and enjoy it and and optimize those days and and i get it you know you you don't necessarily need to optimize your your equipment for slough sluffy bumps or icy bumps or or a lot of different facets you know one pair of skis can work in multiple areas uh but once you get you know, that optimum equipment underneath your feet, going back is, uh, is just, you know, nah, you got to have a quiver, you know, yeah. and I ski, I board, I also 
uh, you know, telemark. So I have all these decisions to make before I even come. <laughs> That's a lot of gear, man. <laughs> you know, it's, I want to do a, a geek out a little bit more on the snowboards a little bit later in the show because there's still a lot of stuff about Winter Stick that's unique that I want to talk about. But I'd like to get into the kind of the lifestyle behind it, you know? You found a way mm-hmm. to to live in two different mountain towns, and uh, Evergreen could be a third if you want to count that. You're headed toward Ned. That's a fourth. It takes a special yeah. kind of uh, a lifestyle to make that work. And I think yeah. that a lot of our listeners probably are like, well, how do you live in a resort town if you're not a millionaire, <laughs> you know? You you give up on everything else. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, uh, my parents, for the longest time after I moved to Telluride, uh, you're like, we're like, you know, you got to get out of Telluride. You got to really start your life. You're not doing anything there. And uh, I mean, I, I felt completely differently. I felt, uh, you know, I was making great connections. I was doing what I loved. I I worked for a, you know, really world-class custom ski company uh, and, and just made awesome toys for people, you know, and I had a great job, great time doing it. Um, but in town, I think I moved the places I was renting at least once a year, if not more. Um, at some point, I, I slept a, a summer in my in a hammock in somebody's backyard, <laughs> um, you know, sharing rooms. Uh, in one of the places I lived, somebody rented out the closet. Uh, <laughs> you know, it wasn't even a walk-in closet. It was just a it was just a closet on the stairs, and you know, one of with the sliding doors. You know, but it was big enough for him to sleep in the bottom and hang his stuff above him, and and that was happy. Um, (laughs) that's wild so (laughs) you know like you have to do some you know you just have to be okay with sacrificing other parts of your life to a certain extent anymore unless you're moving to telluride with several million dollars there's going to be some some issues you know Uh, there's lots of jobs in telluride right now that's not the problem uh what's what's really making it harder and harder is is you know, lodging, finding a place to live, um, and a, an affordable place to live because you can Airbnb your, you know, Telluride mansion out for, you know, a thousand dollars a night. Why would you rent it out for somebody to somebody for $2,000 a month? Mm, right. That other, somebody's like going $2,000 a month. I can't, I can't afford that. So, you know, you're living outside of town and, and further away. Telluride is particularly rough because it's in a box Canyon. There's not much for neighborhoods, to expand to yeah there's not much beyond town is there yeah it's high density luxury and you got to go at least you know half an hour out of town uh to get to the next to get to the next town you know uh ridgeway's right there and we used to joke it's uh it's ridgeway was a town of the rich people of montrose and the poor people of telluride well (laughs) some people from montrose told me a while back that the billionaires ran the millionaires out of telluride yeah and they went to ridgeway (laughs) yeah Ridgeway's beautiful. It's uh, shh. <laughs> yeah, don't tell anybody. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah um, it's amazing you know, what what it's like to live in a mountain town. Now, Evergreen, you could call that a mountain suburb of the Front Range of, of the Denver area. Yeah, yeah. You still do have to do the I seventy shuffle, uh, unfortunately. But uh, you know, right now there's only you know a dusting of snow on my parents' place, but at, at the at the same rate, um, you know, I remember one day when I was a kid uh, jumping off the porch into like eight feet of snow Mm, so it's just a bit more hit or miss down here i think yep yep and you're headed to netherland tell people what netherland's about that's kind of a unique little mountain community it's a funky little town you know i haven't enjoyed uh being there that much you know i I got a little piece of land out there and uh you know as a for steel and uh and right now there's just trees on it it's just a windy piece of forest uh but, um, you know, they have like frozen dead guy days. It's quirky. It's a mountain town. I, I think it reminds me of what I kind of imagined Telluride was like in the 80s. Yeah, you're you know, probably right. There, it's, you know, it's a it's a ski town and the people there are, are funky. You know, they, they don't want to live in the flatlands and having Eldora around is nice. Um, you know, it is still so much of a pass through little town. Like it doesn't get a lot of the the income from the skiers because they can just head back down to Denver or Boulder and get anything they need. Um, you know, why, what's the reason to stop in Netherlands? You know, you don't need a hotel there. You just go back home. Um, so it's, it's stayed kind of funky and, and, and local. And that's kind of nice, you know, and, and, um, I could afford it. <laughs> yeah. I wasn't going to be able to afford live, uh, getting anything close to tell you, right. 
Well, we lived in, in Wonderview, like I mentioned to you, in Cole Creek Canyon for 20 years, and that is over the mountain, up the way from, from Nederland. So it's not Ned, but it's close enough that people in Ned are kind of like, yeah, you're almost local, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so we knew the area well, and we just moved to Gunnison, of course, which we love Gunnison. Awesome place. But it's, uh, it's different. You know, I used to tell people, they would ask, well, what's it like living up in the mountains where you are up there? And I'd say, well, it's not a location, it's a lifestyle. You can't move up there unless you're willing to put up with what it means to live up there. You know, mm-hmm. that's uh, it's mm-hmm. the weather, it's the commutes, it's a totally different environment uh, than living even on the edge of the mountains somewhere and closer to town. Special thanks to our sponsor, Bissell Bark Bath. Bathing your dog is messy and it trashes your house. Groomers are expensive and in the wintertime especially, you can't clean a dog outside, it's just too cold. Well, the Bissell Bark Bath has solved all these problems. You have a spray nozzle that sprays a solution under the fur on the skin, and then you have a suction that lifts that dirty, wet solution out of your dog's fur. You can clean your dog anywhere in the house without making a mess. It only uses 48 ounces of water. It's a great, convenient way to give your dog a nice cleaning indoors. For more information or to buy your bark bath, go to bissell.com forward slash adventure sports. That is B-I-S-S-E-L-L dot com slash adventure sports. Use adventure sports for the coupon code and they will send you two free no rinse shampoo bottles as well. We're not fortune tellers, but when you lace up our new stronghold work boots, it's easy to see that the future looks strong. We're Danner, and after 85 years of making boots for the unforgiving Pacific Northwest, well, that means our boots come with deep roots. And the new Stronghold Work Boot does just that. This is what happens when iconic quality runs into modern technology. You get tomorrow's classic today. Get into the Stronghold for strength that starts right from where you stand. Find your local store at Danner.com. I mean, lots of different ways to experience the mountain sports. Right, and that's kind of what we're talking about. I'd like to segue because yeah. after Telluride, you decided to take a hiatus and just really get into to uh, snowboarding and splitboarding even for a while. Yeah, you know, I uh, and when you're in Telluride, you don't have many reasons to go elsewhere, especially for skiing. If you if you leave town, it's it's not for skiing usually. <laughs> you're like, okay, I, I just want to go to the beach. Um, and so I didn't get to ski a whole lot of of the west, and I you know. Uh, it, felt like uh you know i got my skills to a point i was like yeah i can go enjoy anywhere um i've, I've survived 10 years of of doing um you know moderate backcountry in the telluride area definitely wasn't the uh the guy getting out after all the time or or, or risking the big stuff um you know i was i kept things easy and and uh and just you know say hey i'm gonna go have a nice time survive and uh, if i get some good turns in the middle then then awesome um but uh, yeah, you know, after ten years of of Telluride, I was was just ready for something new, and and uh, and found myself at a crossroads where I didn't have any anchors. So I packed up my Forerunner, and uh, and just said, well, I'm going to be in the Rockies for for a while. Um, you know, I uh, I did some tours at Berthoud, and uh, on a whim drove to Tahoe, but got to Tahoe in beginning of February, and. There was no snow. You couldn't see any snow at the base of Heavenly. So I was like, okay, I guess I'm in the wrong spot. Uh, Drove back to the Rockies. Um, I have friends in Jackson. So I I skied there for, you know, do some tours around the the thing. But just living in the back of my car, you know, uh, just it's it's cold. But, uh, you know, you get enough blankets in there and you kind (laughs) of figure out how to arrange everything. I put a, a, a pallet over the back. So all my stuff was underneath and I could sleep on top and, and, uh, you know, it was more stealth than a camper van because, you know, it doesn't look like anybody's sleeping there. And if you figure out that somebody's sleeping in there, you just kind of feel sorry for them rather than the, the, rather than thinking <laughs> they're poaching anything. <laughs> so you don't get as much heat from the, from the local authorities. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, they're just kind of like, oh, poor guy. Um, <laughs> Well, what was that like? I mean, a lot of people think, I, I, I don't know, I, a lot of my friends over the years were like, man, I'd like to just do that. Just go and see and explore, do the stuff I love to do. Even if I have to live out on my truck for a little while, maybe that's what I ought to do. Was it worth it? 
it was totally worth it. It was something I'd always wanted to do. I got to drive into the mountains. I got to walk, wake up every day and go, what What do I want to do today? You know, I, yeah. I wrote a little bit. Of, uh, I, I read a bunch. Um, I just explored uh, all these places like Jackson and, and Grand Targhee. I ended up in, in Big Sky and Bozeman. I was looking at a university in Bozeman for uh, for graduate studies and, and just kind of going wherever the wind took me. You know, uh, you know it was kind of like a... Uh, playing poker with your life to a certain extent because like well what's my hand today i'm gonna i'm gonna play this uh chip you know i'd go on a on a tour uh and they were a lot solo so i'd spend a couple of days of, of like gathering intel you know going to the the local ski shops you know, okay i'm thinking about this tour how's this you know is this oh beehive canon is is nice and easy oh, okay cool um and uh and just made some fun connections you know you meet somebody at the top of a of a four-hour tour and a nice hike and and you know, they're sharing your beef jerky with you. And as and, you know, next thing you know, they comp you a pass to Big Sky and, and say, yeah, come hang out and, and uh, you know, take a shower in my place, whatever. And you just meet people and, and drive around. And it was um, it was it was just amazing to do. I ended up in, mm. in Big Sky and uh, after a tour and uh, walked into the uh, the nice Italian place because I was going to spoil myself for once because I was hungry and uh on a whim asked if they needed a bartender and the guy looks at me like, yeah, we really do. It's, you know, we just lost somebody. And uh, two hours later I was being walked down to HR, given a uh, ski pass to big sky uh, four <laughs> days a week of bartending at night and then free lifting us anywhere in Montana. So it was just like, well, great. You know? And they're like, you got a place to stay. Right. I was like, yeah, sure. <laughs> uh, so I, you know, I, I say that I slept in the parking lot of Big Sky for a couple of months, you know, but occasionally, you know, somebody would throw me a couch for a day or two or somebody would leave town. It's like, oh, yeah, man, go stay in my place for a couple of days, uh, you know, met some people and and uh, everybody was just super nice. You know, uh, most nights I was in my car. But again, if I had three days off, I drove to Red Lodge uh, and, and went skiing or drove to Whitefish and went skiing. And uh, I mean, you know one way to look at it is I had a condo at the base of big sky for two months. Yeah. Uh, you know, it was only 30 square foot. <laughs> <laughs> you, had, you had to do a little bit of yoga to get into bed, you know, but, uh, you know, what's um, fun about that is the freedom of it. I think. And a lot of people that just really love an adventure sport, they think, you know, you got to have a season of that where you just out doing it, doing what you love yeah. and soaking it up and That's seeing what happens. That's the adventure, you know, it's an adventure sport. And, and that was the adventure, you know, and, and uh, I'd be climbing into bed, and it's and it's zero degrees out, and blustering and snowing. I'm I'm going. I'm I'm great. I, I couldn't be happier. You know, I'm chasing the dreams. I'm looking for a, a, a new thing to do and a new place to be, and and uh, and just having fun. You know, look finding new things every day. Wow. Um, and just having that opportunity to just just take what you love and and roll with it for a little while. Yeah, it was it was pretty great. Let's talk about so, splitboarding. I don't think that all of our listeners know what we're talking about when I say split boarding. So tell us what that is. It's the best way to uh, to get down the hill uh, in the in the backcountry. <laughs> I've done uh, I've done skiing, uh, which involves either AT, which is Alpine uh, touring, or tele telemark in the backcountry. Um, done that and split boarding, and, and I tell you, standing at the top of a of a couloir looking down and knowing you have to make tele turns or you can just kind of lean side to side and surf it. Definitely the board is the way to go. And, and to, to achieve that, I think, uh, I think it was the nineties where somebody came up with it first where they uh, cut a board in two and then used some hardware to put it back together. And you could take it apart into two skis and put some skins on it. Like a regular skier would hike up, put it back together at the top and get a, a reasonably close facsimile of snowboarding on the way down. Uh, with those early models, they were a bit shaky, but they still did the trick. You still got to surf. Uh, so it just gave the, the snowboarder better access. And, and I mean, the, you, you can go take snowshoes or whatever, and it does the same thing, but the skin tracks for the skiers, they're efficient. They're already laid. Everybody can kind of play the same game. You know, you don't need to lay two, two different sets of tracks. Um, and the technology has be, just been getting better and better with uh, with split boards, you know, fully wrapped inside edges. They're completely made uh, for that aspect. You're not just taking an old board and, and slicing it in half, putting some bolts to the base. Um, but now there, it's a it's a 
niche of a niche now, but it's a, it's a growing niche and uh, it's a wonderful way to just get out and explore the backcountry. And, and, and from my point of view, it's not about uh, peak bagging or, or, uh, or sending the gnarliest uh, couloir or line or anything like that. It's out. It's just going out, having a nice walk and you get some, you get some sledding at the end, you get, you get a little bit of fun. Well, let's talk about that perspective a little bit. You know, you're, you're just saying, well, it's not about all the gnar. It's, it's about getting out there. And you uh, mentioned before the interview something about watching the Olympics and what snowboarding, that side of snowboarding has gone to, and how you kind of mm-hmm. contrast that with where you took snowboarding for your own self. And uh, what's the, I guess there's a, such a huge breadth in the, in the sport now. Um, contrast that for us. Where are you with that? So, uh, I mean, growing up, I was definitely an athlete. Uh, I was a three-season athlete in, in high school, uh, wrestling, football, track. Uh, and skiing was always kind of, the, it just it just wasn't a competition. You're just going out to have some fun. And I think having it that as I was growing up and not getting into the com- competitive aspects of that was, was, was nice for me and definitely shaped how I see the sport going forward. You know, I see uh, uh, a lot of the... A lot of the sport nowadays, you know, I, I don't want to rag on the park kids and stuff because everybody, as long as you're having fun, go have fun, sure. Uh, but I played in the park a little bit and I smashed myself to pieces. Uh, and I go off jumps and nine out of ten times you're fine, but that tenth time you can, you know, you can break your hip or your neck or something like that. And, and just, um, just knowing for the sport, to me, you know, it's more important to, to show – just going out and, and having a good time, making some turns, going for a walk in the wilderness and, 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 you know, thriving in a once in an environment once thought deadly and, and just, it's not without risk. Um, but, uh, you know, so much of the culture nowadays is it was who can go bigger. Uh, the Instagram and Facebook side of things are going, Hey, look at all the stupid stuff I can do uh, to get likes, you know, and, and, and I just like to contrast that that's not the whole sport, you know, uh, you know, you you mentioned stuff like banging yourself up in the park, right? And that you don't have to to strive for the half pipe amazing skill set to go out and have a blast in a board and to go out in the backcountry and have a a natural experience. You know, it, mm-hmm. there's a huge variety out there. It it all can be fun, but you know, safety matters with yeah. all of it. Mm-hmm. And in the backcountry, you better have your avi training. You know what to do with the avalanche terrain. You know what I mean? Yeah, you know, and I don't want to mean that. I don't want it to see that seem that uh, you know I'm, I'm saying one is risky and the other isn't. I mean, there's there's all sorts of risk that goes into the backcountry stuff. I mean, uh, you don't even have to make a wrong turn or get hurt. I mean, if your if your equipment fails uh, and you're seven miles back in in the snow, I mean, you know, you have to be prepared for these kind of things. Um, I think that's another aspect of of the sport that uh, that is nice. You know, cultivating like personal responsibility and just being aware of your stuff uh you know in snow science is it's a snow it's a science you know you just being aware of of the snowpack of temperature gradients of uh you know moisture movement um for me is just a, another way to to i guess draw col- closer to and this is going to sound cheesy i guess but draw cl- closer to reality kind of in a in a Zen Buddhist way you know uh, Zen in the art of archery it's it's kind of Zen in the art of, of snowboarding you don't do it to snowboard, you do it to, to kind of cultivate that whole awareness and knowing what the snowpack underneath you looks like is just as important as looking up and, and knowing what the weather says you should do that day. Mm. Uh, and, and, you know, it, it just helps cultivate that, uh, that higher awareness of, of stuff that's going on and being part of the environment around you. And, and that's, yeah, that's a big draw for me, but yeah, of course safety is, is huge. I've lost, uh, you know, Tony Seibert, I, I taught him at, uh, at Vale Valley Academy, and, and he died several years ago in, in East Vale. Mm. Um, I've had uh, another friend, Nate Souls, in, in Telluride Pass, um, and uh, Abel Palmer earlier this year was another Tellurider. Uh, uh, that, uh, so, I mean, it's, you know, I've had, had friends and colleagues and stuff, you know, have some, you know, go down. And uh, it's definitely... It, it's painful, you know, and, and you, nobody wants to, to lose people. And I know a lot of skiers that are like, well, you know, it's worth it. And if I go down an avalanche, no, I was doing what I loved. And, it, and you know, it hurts. But at the same time, 
yeah, you're doing what you love, but you left behind a wife and some kids. And, right. and I mean, that, that's not responsible. Like, yeah. why, why are you out there doing this? What, what is the motivation that's, that's getting you out there and risking your life uh, like this and, and, and looking at, at what's really motivating us? Is it the couple extra Instagram likes? Uh, you know, that's, you're going to get, is it kind of, uh, you know, Oh, well, everybody else is, is doing this radical stuff. I got to go out and, and, you know, and lay some, lay some gnarly tracks down to cool So I look like I, I keep up. Yeah. Um, I hear you, man. You know, adventure and, and, sports, you can take them to the edge. You can take them to the envelope. You can also do them in a way that, like you said, you just more about connecting with your environment and enjoying the sport and, and kind of the Zen of the moment, so to speak. And mm-hmm. that's what's beautiful about adventure sports is you can do anything on that spectrum and you got to figure out what's right for you. But I am on the side of stay safe. It's not worth mm-hmm. dying for, you know, stay safe, yeah. go have fun, decide to, to leave it for another day if the risk is too high, you know, or if you're not in the groove that day or whatever, you know, safety first so that another day you can go and do it again. And exactly. that's and, what it's about. My, you know, my parents ask me, and even still, they're like, "You don't do that crazy stuff." And I was like, "No, most of the time, no. <laughs> uh, I can't. I can't say that I don't ever put myself at risk there. But most of the time, I go skiing. The greatest risk during the day is driving the driving there. Absolutely. Um, you know, so no, you can't just take risk out of the thing. I think if you if you did that, it, you know, it would lose some of its draw as well. But, um part of the the great feeling of accomplishment that you get is to yeah i think going out in in a deadly dangerous environment and turning it into your playground i mean that's a huge ego boost and if you do it well i mean you get done at the end of the day you feel like you accomplished something all you did was smash a couple of snowflakes but you you get this huge feeling of accomplishment uh and and just joy when you get done with the tour you're like yeah i, I went out there and and laid part of it on the line or I, or I just went into this environment, into this place, uh, and I came back, and, and I learned something, either about myself or the mountains or, or the weather, and uh, yeah, and that's what I'm hooked on. Yeah, I get it, man. I, it, what about the feeling of saying, hey, I was self-sufficient, self-reliant, I was the one that put myself out there, and I was the one that had to get myself back, and I've learned this skill set, I've learned how to do that, and you know, you have that, that kind of confidence that you learn that, wow, I can do things in life. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't have to depend on someone to care for me and to hold my hand and, you know, all that kind of stuff. I've actually learned how to be self-sufficient. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I like that. I think that that self-confidence can really help. Not overconfidence, yeah, I, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah, I think it helped me get in my car and, and just say, hey, I'm going to live in my car for a while. You know, go, be, being a skier and a snowboarder, uh, you know, in having that confidence in, you know, dangerous or unknown areas and exploring like that. Yeah. It, it, you know, you don't have to do it for skiing. If you can do it for anything you love, if, you know, if, if you really want to do something, you know what, move into your car, drive to where it's happening and do it, you know, like take your dreams and, and, and grab them, you know, like if all it's going to take is a couple of nights of, of discomfort, living in the back of your, of your car, then, then do it. You know, if you got to suffer a little bit to make progress, uh, then it's not really suffering because you're, you're really progressing and it's all just, it's all just kudos. It's all just green. Yeah. And you know what? That's not the norm. That's not the path that most people think they have to take. And I think that's what causes people to, to take pause and say, I don't know. But the reality is you don't have to do the norm. You just have to, to build a life, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, whatever you're dreaming, whatever you're looking at, go for it. You know, and that's that's kind of what I've taken away from the whole sport. It's it's not you against other people; it's you against yourself and in the world, and and to see what you can create out of nothing in a in a world of wilderness. So uh, that's that's my angle. It's not a competition unless it's just a competition with yourself. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Whether mountain biking, hiking, skiing, or doing other adventure sports, getting split up from your friends and family is no fun. Gotana has solved this problem. That's Gotana, like Antana, but Gotana. 
Gotenna Mesh is a tiny but mighty device that pairs with any smartphone to enable the first 100% off-grid, mobile, long-range, customer-ready mesh network. Your mesh network then allows you to see exactly where other Gotenna devices are on your cell phone, as well as to text back and forth so that you can reconnect with your friends and get your day rolling again. These devices are also amazing for travel or finding your loved ones after an emergency. Use Adventure 35 promo code to save $35 on this unique device. Never stress out and waste a day trying to find your friends and family again. The promo code is Adventure35. The website is gotana.com. It's official. Winter has arrived, and Bentgate Mountaineering is prepared to help you get ready for your epic winter. Come check out the latest in Alpine Touring, Telemark, NTN, and Splitboarding gear. They have brands like Black Crows, DPS, Dinafit, G3, Icelandic, K2, Technica Blizzard, Arcteryx, Mammoth, Solomon, Vole, Neversummer, Jones, and BCA. And you do need to be safe out there. Bentgate has the latest in avalanche safety gear. They have beacons, airbags, shovels, and probes, and they're ready to help you educate yourself on snow safety. They also rent out gear so you can get your skis and your boots there as well as your avalanche safety equipment. What's more, they also have free demo ski days at local resorts so you can try out the latest gear. Now, how much fun does that sound? So swing by Bentgate in Golden, Colorado, or go to bentgate.com to find your new gear, as well as to get updates on all of their events. Hey, let me tell you a story, a segue here into the next thing I want to talk about. But I got to tell you what happened over the last couple of weeks. So I used to be a ski tech. And so I tuned my own skis and stuff, but I had uh, sharpened my edges on my skis until I would, my skis were base high. What that means is too much P-Tex and not enough metal, you can't get on edge well, right? So really hard to carve. So I took him to a place and said, just grind them. Don't do anything else. Just grind them and I'll do the rest. But I forgot to pick them up in time. So I had to pick them up on the way to the ski area a couple weeks ago. So you know what happened. I got up there. My uh, tips and tails have not been detuned. There's striations going down the p Everything wanted to go in a straight line, just like train tracks. That was corduroy. <laughs> all I could corduroy do, is good on the mountain, not your ski. <laughs> not on the ski. And so all I could do is jump turns all day long. You know, couldn't, couldn't carve a thing. <laughs> and actually, on the, on the first run, we took a, a nice black. And about halfway down, I stopped because I found a rock. And I pulled off my skis under the lift, and I'm grinding the tails of my skis on this boulder that's sticking out of the snow. And people are looking at me saying, what is he doing? You know. <laughs> but the reason I tell that story is I brought him back, and then I went ahead and finished the tune the way that I should have in the first place and skied the next time, and they were awesome. Rock solid. Loved it. But I love the experience of getting on something that you helped to form and seeing how it does. So mm-hmm. that was the segue. You got to shape your own boards and experiment with them and see how they ride. So talk to us about that. That's got to have been a, an amazing experience. It's it's pretty amazing, you know. Uh, just uh, just yesterday, I was I was riding a, two pairs of skis. Uh, one I had made for myself at, at the Wagner factory, and another pair that I had just made out of the new factory in in Maine. Uh, but they were made for like East Coast. And they weren't necessarily made for me. Oh, they're right size, but just not my style of ski. They're both the same length, 175. Actually, the same side cut radius, 17. Uh, but, you know, different constructions, uh, you know, tip rocker on one. Uh, one's waist was 85. The other was 104. Uh, and just the difference yesterday, because I took them to the base and hero snow, awesome, send it wherever you want. And, uh, you know, took them to the top. And, and gave them each two runs top to bottom just to compare. So, yeah, what's the difference? Um, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm confident of both constructions. I'm confident of both tunes. I had my hand in, in, in both pairs of skis. Um, but one just had a couple of bells and whistles and a couple of different geometry uh, tweaks that just made it right for my style, you know, how I like to ski, which is down the hill, not lots of turns. Uh, but carving on edge uh, as much as possible, not sloughing, you know, so I like the tighter side cut radiuses. And and, and when you get a, a piece of equipment that is optimized for how you ski and what you ski and your body type, um, everything just comes together and it just clicks. 
Uh, so I'm not saying you can't get that on an off-the-shelf ski, but you've got to be 5'9", 160 pounds to 180 pounds and want, you know, a specific type of, of kind of ski. You know, the, the bigger the ski company gets, the more they have to kind of hit the middle of that bell curve. Oh, yeah. And so everything kind of gets standardized. When you get just a little bit like this and a little bit like that, it's like uh, going to, to Cold Stone or one of those ice cream places. You can make all your own your own ice cream. <laughs> you get to put in the flavors you want. And then you get this this ice cream that's just amazing. And it's like it's everything I ever wanted in an ice cream cone. And being able to put that together is is amazing. And uh, and then on top of that, you get to do that because, oh, well, I made a ski this year. I, can make it. I already have that kind of ski. Now I want another type of board or i have my all mountain board now i need my pow stick or uh, now i need my freestyle stick you know and, and just building your quiver and and uh so each bit of equipment i have is kind of optimized for me for that particular day you know like i have powder day powder board days that if it's 10 inches or more it's like you know this one or two boards um you know if it's if it's a hard pack and nothing new and you don't want to go into you just want to do groomers it's usually tele skis and I, and I, you know, have them all, all kind of set up. Uh, but when it's, you know, custom tailored to you, that's huge. Uh, it's, it's, it just feels great. I was wondering just this weekend when I was skiing, I was wondering how many people gave up the sport because they are on the wrong equipment. Oh, yeah. And, it, and it doesn't mean you're a beginner either. I mean, once the transition from beginner and intermediate, you're expecting to ski like all these other people because you put the time in but it's just not going well for you and you're having a hard time and you're not being able to, to do what you think you should do or what you want to do. And, and I think a lot of that is, yeah, getting on the right equipment. And sometimes the rental guys, sometimes they know and, and they can help you out. And sometimes they're just going to throw you on whatever skis they got in the back. Here's some boots. Cause they got to get you through the door. Got to get you out. They get the next person. Yeah. Finding that, the right equipment for, for you and, and how you ski it's just, it's fun too. You know, you get to technical geek out about, Oh, you know, do I like a, a 17 meter side cut or do I like a 25 meter side cut? What is the difference? Understanding, you know, how a ski turns and how a geometry interacts with the snow. Um, you know, that was the, the amazing thing that I don't think skiers give the credit to snowboarders for quite enough is, uh, you know, the whole shape revolution, you know, with the, the side cut and taper, and, and all of a sudden, there was more flavors of ski than just the 200-centimeter GS. Like, yeah, you're going <laughs> right. to ski, like, ski like Franz Klammer, or you're not going to ski. You know, it's... Yep. You just listed <laughs> oh. the skis I skied before the ones I have now. And I, it's like being on two-by-fours, you know? Yeah, you know, it, I mean, if they're, and they're good. Those Franz Klammer GS skis are great for doing that, but not much else. Um, you know, and so there's just such a spectrum that it's, it's really been nice to see that even ski design as a whole is, is getting away from, no, these are the skis you have to ride. And these are the only things that, that go to, no, you're a different person. You're a different skier. Um, your ski can be expected to be optimized for, for a bunch of different things. And let's find that optimum ski. That's going to make you the happiest. Yeah, that's cool. So it's an art form. It really is. It is. Yeah. This is like ta tailoring a suit or, or, you know, uh, or something like that where you're, you know, really molding, um, you're, you're taking in information about the process, about how they ski, you know, where they ski, all that kind of stuff. And being able to then, uh, you know, see the pictures of the smiles on them, you know, yeah, of course they look like what they want as well, but you get, uh, you know, big smiles going, Oh, my skis are so amazing. And they just kind of, when they, when they're the right shape, what you want to use them for it just kind of melts away yeah. you don't think about it anymore and you just get down to the business of writing and it, and it just becomes one with your feet it's a beautiful thing <laughs> i've heard a little debate about when the equipment gets so much better is it cheating people feel guilty because they put on a new set of skis that make life so much easier they're like oh but does that mean i was never as good or does that mean i'm actually better or is it am i cheating somehow because i have good equipment i'm like whatever take <laughs> advantage of it and have fun yeah. the swallowtail is probably the, the poster boy for that argument just because it, it is the most geometrically optimized shape you can get for snowboarding and pow and uh and yeah i mean yes you can go you know down that hill with with your you know rocker twin tip 152 uh 
it's going to be a different experience than, you know, if you're on the 183 swallowtail. It doesn't mean one's better than the other uh, from a, you know, purely stand back, look at it, yeah, just getting down the hill perspective. Um, but one's going to feel easier. One's going, you know, yeah, it's, is it cheating? Yeah. I don't know. It's not, a, there's no rules though. You're just going out there and, and you're having fun. And if a different shape means you can have more fun, uh, then that's not cheating. That's winning. You I know, agree. Like the, the best being prepared. <laughs> I agree. You know, the, all of the adventure sports, the equipment has developed over the years to where the sports become easier and you can do stuff on, on the gear now that was really hard before. And some people might say, well, you never learned how to do it on the hard stuff. Well, who cares? Are you having fun? Are you being safe? Yeah. <laughs> you know, you living? That's what it's about. Well, let's talk about, speaking of art form, uh, let's talk about winter sticks. I look at them, and they're unlike anything else I've seen. They've got the, uh, well, first of all, I'll let you two talk about them. I just want to describe what they look like. You can tell us what it's all about in a second. But the top cap, which may not even actually be a cap, is like beautiful furniture, you know, with polyurethane over the top. And you're looking into this deep, rich wood pattern. And that's not what you expect to see on a snowboard. But it looks so cool. Yeah. You know, uh, I think it was the Seth Morrison's from from either, I think it was like mid mid two thousands or something like that. It was a big ski, awesome powder ski, but the top sheet was yellow, and it had some pencil drawings of a guy puking a river of blood that contained helicopters and razor blades. Oh no! And it was just like, whoa! Like, where is where is this going here? Like, you know, there's artwork and there's just like whatever that is. I mean, that you know it's memorable. Obviously it did its job in, in, in that aspect of the art. Um, you know, and, uh, it, I was a Wagner. I got to, uh, do custom top sheets for everything I did. I did some art and, and, uh, you know, people would call in and they like, Oh, I want pictures of my kids or, or my dogs on my skis and that kind of stuff. And it's nice to have just something you look down and, and it feels personal. Uh, you know, when you have graphics that are that are kind of like yours, or or at least a graphic that you like, you know, you you saw it on the shelf and said, "Hey, that looks cool. I wanna I wanna ride that." Um, the wood has gotten a lot of great attention because it's just classy. You no, know? uh, yeah, it is. We, we did it for a variety of reasons, um, but uh, I had built some wooden skis there at, uh, at Wagner and in a couple of wooden boards, and I just loved the look. It was a nice, clean look. Um, it wasn't the easiest thing to do. There's still, uh, you know, there's still things to be to be optimized about it. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it had its own quirks. You know, uh, you can just throw a, a plastic top sheet over just about any kind of construction and it'll look fine. Um, here, uh, if we get a, something off by a couple of tenths of a millimeter, you get a little bubble and then that's not a bad thing. So it's actually, uh, it's rather tough to do and getting the, the finish out of the press um, just, as clean as it could go and not having to go back over and refinishing it uh, was a, a big hurdle. And, uh, and, and I think a big success because it, it saved us just a, a lot of chemicals and, and processing time. So we just saved a lot of money um, in, in how much we had to work it getting that out of the press. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, the wood, it's just, it's a beautiful, natural look. I'm a big fan of nature anyway. So uh the elm top sheet looks like a topographic map. Uh, you know, the walnut's got, you know, yeah, like you said, classy furniture on it. The fiddleback maple is uh, kind of looks like the back of a violin. Uh, and uh, and yeah, just I'm a, I'm a big fan. Of, yeah, uh, it of looks wood really cool. And the natural materials. So I met you at Outdoor Retailer, and we did a, a short interview there. And believe it or not, Dan, it airs today while we're recording this one. Uh, You're actually uh -huh. on the air today. So people have already heard your voice by the time this one comes out. And there you talked quite a bit about um, how this is a green ski in the sense that it's better for the environment. Uh, let's recap a little of that since we're in context here. Sure. What makes it greener? So um, you're, you're cutting out a lot of externalities. Uh, and, and if you're not familiar with economics, externalities are, are things that, uh, that, you know, you don't necessarily have to pay for, uh, you know, uh, the, where the trash goes, you know, you, you pay for a trash, but you, you can throw anything in your trash bin. It's just, it is just taken away. Um, you pay for that service and it's just become somebody else's problem. Um, you know, when, when you're using whatever material you're using, you have to think of its entire life. Where did it come from? 
how is it treated, process to get to where I'm able to use it, what, I, what processes do I have to do to get it to the point that it is actually part of what I'm trying to do, and then what's left over. Once I have my product, I probably have a lot of other kind of waste and, and excess. Where does that go? Uh, so by taking out the and, – and the most obvious things are the wooden top sheet and the wooden sidewalls. Um, by taking out those two things, I don't have to source sidewall plastic. I don't have to source top sheet plastic. I don't have to source um, plastic dyes or uh, sublimation inks and, and all these various solvents and chemicals. I don't, I don't need the printers. Uh, you know, I, I can take all these things that I would have to purchase, and, and all of a sudden, I, I just don't need them anymore. Then once you take it into the manufacturing process, yeah, you're, you're planing you, you, we get it in a stick that's like a centimeter by a centimeter, and we get it in uh, the plastic in much the same way. You know, it's a big stick. It's it's definitely not profiled at, at our quantities. It's not already pre-profiled to what we need it for. So we have to plane it down. Uh, if it's plastic, you're taking two-thirds of that uh, plastic bar and, and effectively turning it into particulate. You know, you're running a, a CNC router over it and planing it down to shape. Um, and for a board, that is equal to a, a pound of, I know, it was a two-pound um, can of coffee container full of plastic shavings. Mm. Um, if it's, you know, all of a sudden that's somebody else's problem and it's, it's not going to decompose. Uh, you know, you don't want to throw out the window into the stream, definitely. That wouldn't be a good thing. And, you know, you have to pay somebody to take, care of it usually that's the garbage guy you throw it in the garbage and it goes and it's again somebody else's problem looking at a, at externality and taking responsibility for those materials uh is a big step and i think it's one that uh, most companies in in any industry uh need to start doing more is is realizing that yeah these externalities somebody has to deal with that at some point in the future so instead of making a, a coffee can of plastic shavings that will outlive me uh you know just being able to use a wood sidewall means it's sawdust. You can bed your hamster, you can put in a compostable toilet, you can, you know, put it as mulch in your lawn. It's just sawdust. Yeah. Uh, and being able to make that transition is huge. Now, is the snowboard that we make, does it still have fiberglass, epoxy? Yes, yes. Plastic base? Yes. Um, but it's a step. And it's a very visible step, you know. Uh, it's, it's right out in front. It's beautiful. They look amazing. Um, and they look just a bit more, you know, natural. It's it's not space age materials, but it's just made correctly. Um, and it's actually a better product, I, I believe, as well, because wood wants to bond. It's porous. It's got uh, a bunch of gaps and holes for the epoxy to get into and really become one with the wood. Uh, the top sheets are, are quite thin, and so you'll get actually get epoxy soaking all the way through from the bottom. Uh, and you don't even have to epoxy the top if you don't want to. And so it'll actually, you know, flow through and the, the wood veneer becomes one with the epoxy. Uh, the plastic, you have to, the top sheets you have to back with like some kind of fuzzy nylon stuff. The sidewalls, you got to sand and flame treat so you get the, the top of their, uh, any surface that you want to bond, you have to, you know, make it into kind of a, a molecular Velcro yourself through certain processes, sanding and flame treating and, and handling them correctly and if you do that wrong eh, they might not be the most durable thing that, that you make uh wood is just it's it's easier to work with it wants to bond better it looks nicer and in the end it, it i think it perform performs better too because you hold up a piece of plastic and it'll droop you hold up a piece of wood and it keeps its shape it's got energy to it it'll give you feedback and it's just a stronger thing so i think you know it just checked all these boxes for us and it was like wow i, I don't understand why people aren't doing it this way uh, you know, there's definitely been companies before this that have to have done this. Um, and their kind of problem is, is being scaling up and going to, to China. Scotty Bottoms uh, had wood sidewalls for a long time. Ski Logic had wood sidewalls for a long time. Um, Arbor did wood top sheets for a little bit. And, and if you look at their, their history, they kind of got away from that more and more as their volume got greater and greater. So with Winter Stick, I think uh, at least for now, you know, we're, we're not struggling to keep the volume low. Uh, you know, we're still kind of working at capturing uh, market share still. So our volumes are nice and low. We can build stuff out of 
the good materials. And you start with good materials, it reduces your externalities. You start taking responsibility for, for you know, manufacturing waste. Uh, and then you end up with a better product too. Nice. So it just kind of hit all these check marks uh, for us. And we're like, yep, that's, that's the way to go. And in uh, the last two seasons of, of durability testing have, have proven that, you know, uh, it's not like we haven't broken anything. We've broken stuff on purpose and we've broken stuff not on purpose, but uh, you're banging it against a mountain. That's going to happen when you, when something breaks, you bring it back from the factory and say, okay, how did this break? And how can we make that better? Part of the evolutionary process, but um, you know, to, uh, to see how much success we've had with these materials, you know, it, that's the, that's a, a big thing for me is, is just to show the industry that, you know what, you can make steps, you know, it, you don't have to do the, the excuse like, oh, you know, ski building just isn't a green industry. You know what, we, we can make it better. Is it, uh, is it snowboards made of maple syrup, hemp and wood? No, not yet. <laughs> <laughs> no, nobody's going to be eating these things anytime soon. But um, just to to get out there in the market and say, hey, look, you you can make these things with with the, uh, a nod to the environment, and you can make progress. Yeah, that's cool. It's, uh, it's just a, a great thing to be to be associated with and kind of known for. And, and you know, it kind of fits what you were describing with your kind of your your zen of snowboarding lifestyle as well. You know, it, it kind of matches that um, working with instead of against. You know kind of a mentality and i like that yeah so how can people find out more about winter stick snowboards check out our website you know there's uh there's a bunch of different facebook groups um some official some unofficial um you know there's a there's a whole uh kind of scene around winter sticking up from from utah back in the day so uh from from old collectors to uh to new enthusiasts and and everything in between uh, there, we have a pretty good, pretty good website preference, uh, presence and, and just a presence in, in social media in, in, in general. Um, you know, uh, Seth Westcott and Rob Kingwell got us in the, uh, the last two Warren Miller films. I had a board in, uh, in Jeremy Jones deeper, um, you know, the, the brands are out there and, and getting a little bit of attention, just a little bit of digging. And, uh, it's, it's really fun to just read about kind of the whole history and, uh, and the brand that's been kind of, uh, part of the whole histories yet in the background uh, definitely didn't take center stage like like burton or or, or sims or anything like that but mm. uh you know it's a, it's its own kind of version of of the history of snowboarding it's cool i'll say that much i listeners you should go to winterstick.com and look at this stuff because it's like oh i get what you're talking about it really is cool well dan yeah, thank and- you so much for being on with us today i'm afraid we burned through our time but I really enjoyed learning more about snowboarding and skiing culture, backcountry and otherwise, living in mountain towns, and about winter stick. It's a better way to do it. So cool, man. Thank you. Yeah, just trying to evolve every day as a, as a rider and a, and a builder and, and just uh, try to make the world a better place and, and have fun doing it. <laughs> right thanks, on. For your, thanks for your uh, time and, and interest in, uh, in helping me uh, share the story. Uh, also check out West Mountain Ski Company. We do have a line of skis as well. Um, you know, we have models, but we also do full custom stuff. So um, that's so West. Short little plug there. Yeah, West, West Mountain Skis.com. You got it. West MTN Skis.com, Winterstick.com. Check them out. Thanks a lot, Kurt. Yeah, you bet. And for all the listeners out there, you know, I have to say it because I say it every show, but that's what it's about. Get out there, have some fun. Coming up on Thursday, Melissa Khan will be here to talk about the Himalayan Rush Triathlon. Until the next episode, get out and have some fun. Why don't you do yourself and us a favor and become a member of our Facebook group. In there, you can hear about some awesome adventures, learn how to do new ones, and share what you've been up to. And while you're on the web, do us a favor and go over to patreon.com slash adventuresportspodcast and consider becoming a patron to help the show. You can also find a link to Patreon at the top of our website at adventuresportspodcast.com. As always, thanks for listening, guys.